This past year, I think I, I have a feeling I've started about half a dozen messages as I looked at this, the same thing. This past year has seriously taxed my Christianity. <laughs> I don't know about, no, I do know about you because a lot of you have told me this. It's taxed your Christianity, not your faith. Now, here's the weird thing. It didn't tax your faith. It didn't put that in any kind of pressure, but just your, your like you still trust God and you still believe in God, but the way you, you walk your walk, right? This past year has been, been very difficult. Um, the way I should think and act towards people I'm supposed to love, right? Not only you, you know, if I loved you enough, but the, the people out there, and I look at their opinions and the things that they're saying and doing, and I just think, Lord, how can I love them? Some of them are you, you just lovable because it's not their fault, but other ones you think, <laughs> and I'm supposed to love them. God, help me, help me, because I don't, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it at, at all. Um, you know, you, again, I think Douglas nailed it, Right? Natural desire is to fight fire with fire, right? It feels so right, and it feels so fair, and it's just poetic. Um, but when we fight fire with fire, we burn everything down, and everybody loses, right? Like Doug, he could have been mean to his neighbor, and the relationship could have gone even, even worse, but they did something loving and nice, and it, it repaired, it redeemed. It was amazing, so the Apostle Paul, taking his cue from Jesus, shows us a very, very surprising and, and a rather unsettling, I'll just say it right now, it's very, very unsettling. I mean, it took me, I, I, I'm, hmm, I'll be honest with you, probably in the last five years is when I finally figured this out, what I'm going to preach to you today. Um, very unsettling, a better, a better way. Romans 12, 21, we read this earlier, or Doug, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, and it sounds so easy. Just be nice. Be good. Go rake some leaves. I don't know. No big deal, right? Um, right? We all know God's will is to love God and, and love our neighbor. I think one of, our, one of the talk show hosts, right, be good to each other. Be good to one another, right? Closes off her, her show. Be good to one another. It just sounds so easy and so appropriate in everyone. It's accessible, accessible. Um, people who have never been to church, they, they get this one right every time. Yeah, love your neighbor. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, everybody gets that part of it, right? We all know this. But the room heats up. I guarantee you the room will heat up when we start talking about the right way to love God and love our neighbor because there are some widely varying opinions about what is the proper way to love our neighbors and the proper way to love God, right? For example, human life, right? Most people can agree that human life is sacred, right? At least um, indescribably unique, right? If they're not going to go as far as sacred, most people in the church, outside the church will agree that life is incredibly unique, right? And that love, right? L-O-V-E, love is inexplicably intertwined with life. It's just, it's a part of life. It gives life, life, right? Love makes life worth living, but what's the best way to express that, right? And this is where, again, this is where we start arguing and we start uh, our tempers and our anxiety and everything, everything gets up. Um, and, and I'm going to list off a few things here, and, and I'll tell you right now, I know people, I, I know and love people, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and you will find them, people I know and love, people you know and love on every single side of every one of these issues, I promise you, right? Is the best way to express love to protect women's rights or the unborn right? Is it euthanasia? Does euthanasia add or remove to a person's dignity and self-worth, right? And we, we have issues. Should women be preaching? Like, that's the big one in the news right now. Should women be preaching? 
Um, how do we address racial injustices and inequality, sexual preferences, gender issues, immigration, mass and the list goes on and on and on. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're the same as me. You know followers of Jesus Christ who fall on both sides of all of these issues. And on the ones that you're on the opposite side of these issues, you look at your Christian friend and are you a Christian or not? Right? And I know you've been thinking about it because I've had conversations with you. And, and I know I've said some very, very surprising things this past year because there's so many things that have just tested, that's the word, tested my walk, the way I live out my faith. God's will is that nobody should perish. And I think we can, um, I think it would be safe for me to uh, paraphrase that or in other words or parallel it. Um, God's will is that nobody should ever feel unloved. I think we can say that. Because when you're, when you're unloved, and again, I think you know this, you, parts of you perish. Parts of you die when you don't feel love. That's our human condition. We have to feel love. We have to give love in order to truly live. So God's will is that nobody should ever perish. Nobody should ever feel unloved. But which is the right way to love which, which is his way to love. And again, we, we, we argue and we, we get all upset about this. So here's the fun part today. Um, the apostle, not, he's not an apostle. He's a gospel writer. Mark was a little kid from what we can gather. More than likely, uh, the gospel writer, Mark, um, lived with Peter, got a lot of his information from Peter. Peter was a lot older than him. Mark was a little bit younger. So Mark really isn't ever counted as one of the apostles, but he, he was a little kid, I think, running around bothering everybody. I kind of get that impression. Um, but he grows up and he writes, writes his gospel. Um, and he arranges his material brilliantly for his Roman audience. See, his gospel is written to the new Christians in Rome. Um, and this is all brand new to them. Right, to the Christians in Rome, they're really been brought up and raised in a Greek world. There are lots of gods, gods everywhere. Honor all of them. And if you don't, you're going to get in trouble because one of them that you don't honor will get mad and cause trouble. So the Romans' opinion was honor everybody, even the unknown god, right? The, the Athenians did the same thing. Honor everybody. Again, there was no prophecies to build on, no 2,000 years of history for Mark as he writes to the new Roman Christians. Like, he's just going to have to wing it, right? He's got nothing backing him. He's just, he's just going to have to say it very, very, very simply and plainly. No prophecies, no extras, no anything. And you never know, I don't know if you noticed, but Mark's gospel is very short, right? It's just 16 chapters. So if you want to read a quick gospel, Mark's your guy, right? And it's very action-filled. It's just like, here's what he did, here's what's important, and my book ends, right? That, that was Mark. It's interesting that, that, that Mark's gospel, and we, we just looked at the apostle Paul's letter to that same Roman church, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, we're a lot like the Romans. The same situation. We, in America today, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of gods that you can choose from, quite a few. We used to have just one, but, but we've become America, the America that, that I think our founding fathers had envisioned a home to all peoples. Well, that brought in all religions too. And they tried to set up for, you know, a safe way to do that. And I think they did fairly well compared to other countries, I, I think. Um, but we're, America's a lot like Rome. 
But Mark was trying to tell the Roman citizens, that, and he's trying to tell us today that, that this God, this, this Jesus guy, radically different than all the rest, radically different than all the rest. So Mark makes several, several statements simultaneously, right, kind of all at the same time. Um, first of all, most importantly, it, it's going to be a journey of discovery, right, for the disciples. Um, he needs them to know. Jesus needs the disciples to know, and Mark is letting us know that Jesus needs the disciples to know. That came out fairly well. Um, who is Jesus? What is the Messiah? And how is that connected to being a disciple, right? That, that's what Mark's got to get them to understand because they're off base on every single one of these things. They're just not getting it, right? The first eight chapters, Jesus, God has done, or excuse me, Jesus has done a lot of amazing, a lot of amazing stuff, but they're still kind of clueless about who is this guy, right? Who is this guy, right? He, he, he has God-like powers, like he, he has God power over nature and over sickness and over demons. He can forgive sins. I mean, but they don't know yet who he is or what that identity, that true identity, like his secret, I don't know, whatever you want to go with that, even what that identity meant, that messiahship, right? they had no idea. And finally, it was slowly dawning on them what discipleship would mean. <laughs> you can see the lights going on, oh, oh. And you'll notice in chapter 8, chapter 9 of Mark, they all, people start going, oh, no, thank you, right? This is... This is more than I bargained for. People are leaving. But the second thing Mark wants his Roman audience to know and for us to know is that the complete understanding will be a process. It'll be a process and it will require a touch of Jesus. You're not going to be able to pull this off on your own. You will not gain clarity of sight and understand everything without the master's touch. It just won't happen. You can't, you can't pull it off on your own. You just can't. You, you can't understand these spiritual insights. You have eyes, but you won't see. You have ears, but you won't hear. It won't make sense. It just won't. The disciples will learn gradually. They'll have moments of incredible insight. And they'll say amazing things. Then there'll be days of the... And you're like, wait a minute. They just said this 10 minutes ago. And now they're like... <laughs> the, the kid in the class that exasperates the teacher, right? They're all, they're all doing this. So Jesus is going to take them on a journey to Jerusalem. But it's going to be a physical journey, but it's also going to be a, a journey of spiritual discovery, not just a physical, not just a physical journey. Um, and they're going to be figuring out the way. And it's going to require a special touch of grace for them to finally understand. And that probably won't even happen until he ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. I think finally then they get it, right? Well, I, I think I know they do because you look at their lives and what they went on to do. They, they got it. They understood what Mark is trying to say this morning. They got it. So between the healing of a blind man at Bethesda in chapter 8, verse 22, like last week we left off at verse 21, and Jesus asking the disciples, do you still not get it? Do you still not understand? So Mark, he's just a brilliant writer, right? He knows his audience. So right after that in verse 22, don't you guys understand yet? Do you still not understand? In verse 22, that was 21. In verse 22, we have the healing of the blind man at Bethesda. And what's amazing about this is like a little mini process lesson. In that one little blind story, you have the next three chapters in a nutshell kind of, right? It's going to be a process, and that's what Mark is trying to say. It's going to be a process. Process, but it's also going to have a, it's going to require a touch of the master, right? It, Jesus touches his eyes, and so in that little mini mini, we're not going to go into it today. It's like yeah, I'm spending a lot of time on it for not going into it. Um, blind man at Bethesda, and then in chapter ten at the ver at the very end of chapter ten of verse twenty two fifty two, excuse me, um, 
Blind Bartimaeus sees, the master touches him. And he, so between these two blind men stories, right, and right before that, the, the disciples can't see anything, um, Mark squeezes in everything that, they, that he wants them to see and understand, to see, right? And it's just so brilliantly put between these two blind men stories. The disciples are going to see, but it's going to take time. And it's going to touch, touch of the master. So Mark, in our, in our passage the morning, today, um, is going to be helping both the disciples and us find the right way forward. Um, and what it will look like, right? What it will look like and, and feel like. Again, immediately following, do you still not understand? All right, we got the healing story. And then Mark 8, chapter 20, verse 27, it says this. This is right after the healing of the blind man. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Mark is just screaming at us at this point, right? He's going to show us the way. And he's just like, he's going to get us ready, right? He's on the way. I, I just, I love this. He asked them, who do people say I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Again, this is where the disciples were unsure of his secret identity, right? Who is this guy? Verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And for the first time, at least in, the, in, in, in Mark's gospel, it kind of plays out in the other gospels in a similar fashion, but in Mark's, in Mark's gospel, um, that's like a bolt out of the blue, right? It's just like everyone's like, what? what? And, and everybody, like lights are going on all around the room. Like, what? That's, I don't know, maybe, maybe they were talking about it and like, Peter, say, say, say it, say it, say it, say it. Are you the disciple? I mean, are you the Messiah? Right? So, of course, Peter's the one that says it because he's like their spokesman. Um, and Messiah simply means, um, in Hebrew, it's the anointed one of God. Um, and, and in Greek, it's Christ. So it's Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, just kind of fill that out a little bit. And, and, and Peter nails it, right? You're the Messiah. And then Jesus replies in a very, very startling manner. He says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why does he do that? Because the people have the wrong idea about the Messiah. They've got all this idea about the military rule and power and might and, and all this kind of stuff. And the disciples did too. And Jesus had to make sure that before they started yapping and telling all, you know, all their friends and everything, do you understand what Messiahship means? Because I don't want you to go talk to anybody until you truly understand what it means because you're going to pass out the wrong message and then people are going to try to make me a king and they're going to they're they're miss it. They're going to miss it. They're going to misunderstand everything. And so in verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and it gets worse, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke very plainly about this. And you notice in the first cha eight chapters, he's, he's really not talking about it at all. He's kind of alluding to it along with when he does amazing things, but he really hasn't spoken plainly to them. And now he, I, apparently he just lays it on the line. And we don't have the full conversation here, but, it, but he, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And I just kind of want you to picture this just in your, in your mind. Um, Disciples are kind of excited. They're going to be the, 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 the right-hand men of the new ruler. So they're like, yeah, this is great. This is, this is awesome. Um, but Jesus, all this talk about suffering, like that's a downer, right? You're going to get the troops, right? They're, they're going to walk. So you, let's just go back to how you're going to make our marriages better. Let's just go back to how you're going to make us better neighbors and, you know, and all that. that. That's what the people want to hear. Like, just stop talking about this suffering stuff. 
Ain't nobody going to join that army, right, to suffer? <laughs> who, who? No, nobody. And actually, scholars agree that Peter must have taken some time. This is amazing, right? It says that, that, that Peter took him aside. And if you read through the Gospels, this happens a couple more times. You know, James and John pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, well, his mother, <laughs> their mother pulls him aside and says, hey, make sure my sons get seats of honor, Right? And all the other disciples, right, they're, they're, if somebody pulls Jesus aside, somebody go find out what they're talking about because you're going to end up in the wrong end if you don't get a part of that conversation, right? Again, so Peter pulls him aside. And, and it must have taken some time. And scholars really believe now that, that he must have spoken convincing words. What Peter said to Jesus made sense to Jesus. Jesus understood what he was saying was not going to be well received. He totally understood that suffering is not what people want to hear about. He totally got that, right? This is no, no big surprise to Jesus. That helps us understand Jesus' startling reply to poor Peter. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, so I picture the disciples are inside the house, whatever, and Peter's taking Jesus outside, and they're, they're talking for a little while. And then I get the impression that Jesus suddenly notices, he glances back, and all the disciples are going, right? And Jesus is thinking, oh, man, Peter's making sense. I can see that, and I know my disciples can see that, and I know what they're going to ask me next. Jesus, what in the world are you doing? And so Jesus is going to have to handle this decision, with, this moment with some clarity, he does. Get behind me, Satan, right? Like that'll, that'll, that'll get the disciples to get back in the house, whatever's going on there. Right? Get behind me, Satan. And again, he's not calling Peter Satan. What he's saying is, what Peter, what you're saying is you're putting, you have Satan's words in your mouth, right? I went through all this in the very first chapter of the book of Mark, right? That's not what Jesus says, but right at the very, very beginning, I was tempted by Satan in the, in the wilderness, and what Jesus is hearing is Peter's speaking the words of Satan right into his ear, and it's making sense. And I can imagine during the wilderness, Jesus, right, that was a struggle, 40 days. That was a big struggle. That wasn't just an afternoon of easy testing. It, that, was, that, was, that was something. Get behind me, Satan. He was battling the same temptations, right? Peter was making him relive those 40 days, which must have been just incredible. And, and Jesus responds very understandably, right? Ah! See, at this moment, he was fighting that battle, and he had to decide, would he take his way, Peter's suggestion, the one that the disciples would be really, really excited about, probably everybody else would be excited about for the short run, or would he take the seemingly might possibly be the wrong route that doesn't make sense to anybody in the world. But that's what God said, so he's going to trust God, his heavenly Father. See, Jesus had to decide which way to be, not which way to go. It's not like he makes decisions. It's who he is. Who did he decide to be? Would he be what God had intended him to be? Many folks are facing this kind of 
temptation. Maybe some of you have issues that you're facing during this year. And this year would be the year that you would face these kind of tests. I don't know if I want to call them temptations. Maybe I want to call them tests. Um, one way, I mean, you, you have a couple options. I don't know what your test is. But, but one way will probably require, and you've already thought it through, is going to require a compromise, a moral compromise. But the results will be really, really good. God would even be happy with the results. Your second option would be to not do what you were thinking of doing. Instead, do something that's going to involve a cost, and the end result probably isn't going to be as amazing as that other result was going to be if you just compromised a little bit. God won't mind. God, God, God will be fine with that because it's a godly outcome. The means justify the end. No, that, that's not what God is saying. Don't, don't go home and go, oh, Pastor Jerry said that. See, another way is going to involve a cost in order to avoid the compromise, and there will be a less than perfect outcome. In fact, the writer of Psalm 118 faces exact same situation, similar circumstances, choices. Listen to this, Psalm 118, verses 1 through 3, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on here. This guy is excited. He is way, way excited. Israel, praise God. Religious people, praise God. Everybody who loves God, praise God, because I had a choice. I had an issue in my life, and I could have chosen the world's way, but I decided to choose God's way. I could have chose violence and coercion and power, but I chose grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is kind of what's going on in the background in this psalm, and it concludes here. This is amazing, right? Um, he chooses God's way, and, and, and this is what he says afterwards. This is verses 22 through 24. The stone that the builders rejected, now the stone that the builders rejected is power, right? Power and coercion. Back up. The stones that the builders rejected was love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. My bad, sorry. Right? The, the, the builders of empire in the world reject that stuff because that's not, that doesn't work. Right? The powers that be are the stone, excuse me, the gospel message is the stone that the builders rejected and has now become the cornerstone in this man's life. Right? Everyone told him, revenge. Right? You have a right. And he says, no, I'm going to choose God's way. And what the people reject is now the cornerstone of his life. And he's saying, look, people rejoice. Look at what happened to me. I did it God's way. And if I'd done it my way and if I'd done it your way, it would have been a mess. But look, I did it God's way. Everybody rejoice, rejoice. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. So here's the concern of Jesus and the writer of the psalm, but not, Jesus, but not Peter's concern. Verse 33, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Right? You're acting like it. You're like you're only in it for what you can get out of it. Right? You're not concerned about what will happen to me. You're concerned about what will happen to you because of what will happen to me. Right? That's really what you're concerned about. Right? I know and I need to know, will you still follow me when things get tough? Right? Will you be standing by my side? Will you suffer beside me, or will you let me suffer alone? Bam! Right in their face. So Jesus takes the opportunity to teach the crowd. Verse 34. 
Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Right, he tells them eyeball to eyeball what's going to happen next to him and if you follow too closely, what will happen to you? And if you think it's only about being a better marriage or enjoying a better relationship with your family, I might have misled you and now I'm going to be very, 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 very clear with you. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. I might have misinformed you. You will have to make some difficult choices if you want to follow me. There will be times when you will have to deny yourself for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. See, we love the benefits, but we just don't want the premiums, right? We all, this is simple stuff. We love what Jesus has done for us and what he gives us, but we don't like what it occasionally costs us. And again, let's be super, super, super clear about this. Carrying your cross is not the same as when Paul spoke in the Corinthian letter about a thorn in his side. He was born with some kind of issue, and he's like, God, take this away. It wasn't my choice. I really don't want it. And God said, hey, my grace is sufficient. You're going to keep that thorn, my friend. But to take up your cross is entirely your choice. You can choose not to pick up your cross. The whole thorn thing and that, kind of, that, that scripture, that's stuff that we're given involuntarily. I mean, you got it. You, that's the hand you were dealt in your life, right? Deal with it. But this carrying your cross, you don't have to deal with it if you don't want to. It's completely voluntary. It's completely, completely up to you. See, our problem is that we want the Jesus truth without the Jesus way, which will never lead to the Jesus life. Pretty much sums it up right there. Here's a fun fact. Jesus isn't all that unique in what he asks of us. Right? You all saw that and go, whoa, 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 back off, man. But, you know, the fact of the matter is we deny and we say no to ourselves completely all the time, right? Your education, your relationships, your children, your career, flag and country. Come on now. Right? We'll, we'll, man, absolutely, we will give everything to these things. They all ask for everything and we gladly give. Right? We gladly give to these things, but none of them will give you what Jesus gives back. It's that simple. Jesus is saying that there will be intersections or crossroads, points of decision, where you will have to make a decision. It will be what I want for you and what you want for yourself. They're going to be two different things. See, it's awesome that you can walk on Jesus, walk on water, Jesus, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I, I want to follow you anymore, right? You're asking an awful lot. And this is why so many people leave the church. It's not like they disbelieve in God or they stop believing in God. They just decide... He's asking too much right now. I'm not prepared to give that much right now. So out you go. And again, this is where Jesus knocks it out of the park, right? He just makes it so plain for the people. Here's what he says to the crowd that's wondering, is it worth it? Chapter, verse 35, excuse me, chapter 8. For whoever wants to save their life, raise your hand if you want to save your life. Right? Boom, boom. Oh, come on now. How many of you want to save your life? Thank you. Everyone at home, you don't see it, but every person in this room is raising their hand. I'm lying, okay? I'm sorry. (laughs) Can't get away with anything around here. Right? So so we got some instant common ground, right? Everybody wants to save their life. It's it's just right, right? So he continues. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. Yeah. You're going to lose it. No matter how many miles you run a day, no matter how many vegetables your wife sneaks into your diet, no matter how much bad cholesterol you avoid... Right? No matter how many bad habits you break, no matter how hard you try to save your life, you will eventually lose it. You all understand that, right? <laughs> I hope you understand that because that's a fact. That's a, 
that's a fact. That's a biblical fact, a biological fact, a science fact, a, you name it. That, that's all over the place. So, all right, so we're with you, brother. Let's go. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And not just your life, your breathing and not breathing life, but everything that makes life amazing, right? Yes, we all die, but whoever chooses to lose their prerogatives, you're going to lose them anyway. Whoever chooses to give up their rights, you're going to lose them anyway. Whoever chooses to give up their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you're going to lose it anyway, right? We've already agreed on that. Relationships, you're going to eventually lose them. Even your life, you will eventually save it. In other words, lose the life you're trying to save and I'll give you a life worth living. That's, that's, that's the trade-off he's, he's asking. And it does require something of us. It's not just a, whoosh, got some change here, got you covered. Here's what Jesus is saying to the crowd. Again, that's wondering, is it still worth it? A life of purpose and meaning, a life of significance. Again, he isn't unique in what he asks, but he is completely unique in what he gives in return, the life of a hero. But Jesus isn't done yet. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Right? Let's imagine that you have everything, every opportunity in the world, the whole world, but in exchange you lose your soul. Either now or in the life to come, right? doesn't matter if you believe in another life or not. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They just, hey, eat, drink, and be merry because once you're done, you're done. Pharisees, they believe in an afterlife. We, we have them to thank for that, by the way. We bag on them a lot, but, but they're the ones that really, really taught that idea. Sadducees, they didn't believe in it. But forfeit your soul, right? I'm not sure what all that entails, but it doesn't sound good, right? Raise your hand if that sounds like your wheelhouse. Good, nobody raises their hand. And while they're thinking about that question, Jesus continues. Listen to this, 36 and 37. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Right? And at the end, realizing that you got everything, but you forfeited your soul, what would you trade to give it back? What would you trade to give it back? I know the answer already. Everything. You would give everything to get your soul back. Boom, bam, baby, it's all yours. Right? You just discovered something about yourself. Your soul is greater than your stuff. Now, a lot of you, that, that, that might, have, might have been a, a very first realization, and you've come a long way. That's fantastic. This is a huge discovery for some folks. Right? Jesus is saying that when we give up stuff voluntarily, that we would have had to have given up anyway. Listen carefully to this. This is crazy. We give it up in such a way as to impact the eternity of our souls and the eternity of the souls of the people around us. That's amazing. That is amazing. Can I get an amen out of that? Amen. All right. That's fantastic. Jesus isn't done yet. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You ever been ashamed of something that you did or ashamed of a relationship you had and you try to hide it? What Jesus is saying is that you will never be ashamed of a relationship with me. It will never bring shame on you. Never. It will never happen. Choosing me will be the best decision you ever make. You will never be embarrassed that you chose the Jesus way. And regardless of what you've done, the relationships that you've had, Jesus will not be ashamed of you when you mess up. Right? Peter, I'll never be ashamed of you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. And what happens? 
a little middle school girl says, hey, Peter, you sound like Jesus, and (laughs) Peter's off, right? I'll never forsake, right? What does Jesus say? You're out of here, out of the pool, party's over. No. He says, hey, stick around. I'm going to put you in charge of everything, but don't do that again, right? Don't do that again. Here's the moral of the story. Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. Jesus paid it all on the cross. You can't do anything to earn it. It's free to all who ask and trust in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, the total defeat of both sin and eternal death. But following Jesus eventually will cost us something. You just kind of got to get that into your head. It'll be probably more than a something. In your lifestyle, in your relationships, your financial decisions, your work decisions, your career choices, at some point a trade-off will be demanded of you. A conflict of interest. And it won't be the same for all of you. It'll be different for all of us. But you'll know when that moment comes. I guarantee you, you will know. It'll be like an awakening of your conscience, something that you never really noticed before, but it will be right in your face. One writer says it'll be like a moral imperative, right? It'll be something that in your mind you have to do or bad things will happen, right? It's just like, I mean, you got it. You got to do it. In many cases, it's going to feel like a death. And I think this is exactly what Mark is trying to tell us this morning with his entire gospel from beginning to end. He wants his Roman audience and us to know something, right? This isn't a mini lesson amongst many for Mark, right? This is the lesson, his main point. I don't know if you're aware of this, but each of the gospels kind of have a different audience, right? Each of the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, being good writers, they knew their audiences, right? The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is written to the Jewish people, got a lot of prophecy in it, got lineages and all that kind of stuff, filled with stuff that will help the Jewish people understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you have Luke's gospel, known as the Son of Man. If you want to see, you know, uh, touching stories of, of, of children and of women and of any in that world dis- disassociated, um, marginalized people, right? If you, you look at the widow and, the, and, and all the really, really human stories, you're going to find them in the book of Luke. Right? He, he wants the Greek world to understand that this Jesus is for them. Not for the rich people, not for the rulers, but this Jesus guy is for every man, every woman, every child. That's Luke's gospel. And then John, he's got his, like, <laughs> doctoral dissertation, right? He's got his proofs of sevens, right? He's got seven signs, seven miracles, right, that prove who he is. He's got seven testimonies about who he is. He's like got seven identifying statements. I'm the gate, I'm the sheep, I'm the vineyard, I'm the, the vine, you know, all these. Um, the, the, all these seven, seven is complete, seven is, that's John. But look at the book of Mark and his audience and his purposes. I don't know if you're all aware of this, but Mark is, his gospel is called the suffering servant. That's all he wants to say. He doesn't really have anything to say to the Jewish people. He wants to say super simply and shortly, this guy, Jesus, suffered for you. End of story. In fact, his gospel ends, really, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. All the rest of them, they got some after stories and so forth, but Mark, I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I did what I needed to do. He died on the cross and he rose 
again. He suffered. Chapter 1 of the book of Mark, you don't have a genealogy, you don't have anything like that, you have his temptations. His whole book, Jesus suffered for you. And if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's going to ask you to suffer for other people. And we have that same power to do what the disciples struggled so mightily to do and understand. It is entirely possible now with the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the will of God. Sounds so easy, but now we know it's not. It, re- it requires a cross. It required a cross. It continues to require a cross. We're asked to carry our cross. Someone's going to have to suffer. Jesus has done his part. Now it's our turn. He understands, too, and this is my closing thought here. He understands when our initial reactions to the way, suffering, he totally understands when we're like, ah, apprehensive or never. (laughs) Get away from me, Satan. No, don't don't say that to Jesus. Don't, Don't say that. But here's the deal. Remember this. Complete understanding will be a process and require a touch of Jesus. My guess is the people maybe in this room sitting at home and you're you're fighting something this morning and and you hear all this message and you think, oh, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way. And Mark, our Savior, Paul, they're, they're all saying, no. No, there's, there's not a better way. This is the way that's going to bring you victory. So you bow your heads. Father, if there are people in this room, they need your touch in order for them to accept this message. Father, without your touch, they're going to conclude, I don't know if I want to follow you anymore. It's beginning to cost me too much. But Father, when we're in your presence clarity comes and I understand that what you did for me Father you're calling me and asking me to do for my neighbors you're asking me to suffer Father be patient with us and by the power of your Holy Spirit, touch every person in this room who's listening to my voice at home right now. And they've decided, I want to trust this guy, Jesus. I don't understand everything, but I want to trust him right now. Father, I give you my life, and I ask that your son begin to direct it. Very simple prayer. I'm sorry for trying to direct my own life, and I, and I really need your help now. I know I can't do this on my own. I'm not seeing very well. Everything is cloudy. So, Father, give me clarity. Give me the clarity that only a touch of your Son can produce and the power of your Holy Spirit can work out in my life right here, right now, where you have placed me, where you've planted me. So, Father, again, for Richland Church of the Nazarene, what are we willing to suffer for the city of Richland? How much are we willing to suffer for for them? Father, help us. In your son's name I pray.